Hi, you're listening to the Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today for episode 181, my guest is Preston Pish, co-founder of the Investors Podcast Network. But first, a special message. This is legendary, world-renowned economist, Lord John Maynard Keynes. I have time-traveled here to seek redemption on this prestigious Bitcoin radio show. For you see, I was wrong. I was arrogant to presume that we could manage economies more effectively through central planning as opposed to simply allowing the free market to do its job. I have chosen this moment in particular to come back and plead my case. The money printers are going burr at levels even I find reprehensible. So, Despite the fact that my savings in British pound sterling have lost much of their value, there is still hope. I just started auto-stacking with Swan Bitcoin, and it was so easy, even I, Lord John Maynard Keynes, who can barely operate a wax cylinder, that's right, even I could do it myself. I have skin in the game now, as they say, and I am here, just like all of you, to learn from Stefan and his wonderful guests. Huzzah! Thanks, Lord John. If you're in the US, you can stack along with John. Just visit swanbitcoin.com slash levera to get started. And as a bonus, Swan will drop $10 of Bitcoin into your account. This episode also brought to you by Unchained Capital, a Bitcoin financial services company. Have you set up your vault yet? Unchained are making it easy for you with a nice and simple web interface. You can use Trezor or Ledger, you can buy one of each even, and set up a two of three vault. And Unchained will be the third key or the cosigner in that scenario. And that's a good way for you to split up your keys and keep your Bitcoin secure for the long term. Also, Unchained offer collateralized loans. So friends don't let friends sell Bitcoin. You can put up some Bitcoin and get USD. That Bitcoin is stored in a dedicated multi-sig address and it's never rehypothecated. Unchained also have open source projects such as Hermit with Shamir's secret sharing and Caravan, a stateless multi-sig coordinator. They've also got incredible content on their blog. Go and check them out at unchained-capital.com. Here's my interview with Preston. Preston, welcome back to the show, man. Glad to chat with you again. Great to be back, Stefan. Great to be here. Preston, it's been really crazy recently. I mean, I guess we should first talk about what happened recently. So we've obviously, over the last few weeks, you know, May 11th or 12th, I can't remember off the top of my head, we had the halving happen. And so that has sort of changed the dynamic as well a little bit because uh, obviously people were a little bit more, they were sort of thinking the price would be a bit lower than what it is now. And perhaps the price has risen up and that has changed a little bit of the dynamic around the miners and how many coins they have available and how much equipment they're on. So I, I, I think it might be good for you to start off there, just on your thoughts on the halving and the dynamics there with the miners and the price dynamic uh, over these last few weeks. Yeah, you know, the thing that I think a lot of people forget about when you go through the halving event, they think that it's just going to be kind of this immediate thing where you start to see the price run. But I think they forget that a lot of the miners are sitting on a treasury of Bitcoins on their balance sheet. Uh, that were put there at a at a flow rate that was twice as much as what it is post having, and it takes time to attrit that that treasury of Bitcoin that are sitting on their balance sheet because that's how they receive their payments and then their their bills are in fiat. So um, it takes some time to chew through that. Now, what I think is interesting about this more recent uh, having that we just experienced was prior to the having, 
we had this massive derivatives meltdown on the global economy, um, made the price of, of Bitcoin shoot down to like 4,000 bucks. It had an aggressive recovery following that. But I think uh, the miners were already uh, fighting for anything that they could capture at that point near the end of the previous four-year cycle. So uh, when that price hit and it was way down, way lower than I think any of them were expecting, I think it sucked a lot of the the Bitcoins off their balance sheets. And I think that that might have been why we saw, even though, I mean, those those first, that first epoch and then uh, the first half there that took place a- after the halving, because the halving happens right there in the middle of the of one of the epochs. Um, I mean, they were struggling. You could see it. They were falling way behind on the timing and uh, their ability to solve the blocks. And so even though they were struggling, I think the, the reason you still saw the price go up, which is what I was not expecting at all, I was expecting us to see uh, a bit of a correction there in the price because of all the difficulty that was being experienced by the miners. But you didn't see that. And that was quite interesting. Um and then today you saw some interesting stuff again happening from a macro standpoint where the market was down extremely hard. You saw a lot of people, especially if if you had derivative exposure, that they had to swap in the fiat in order to take care of a lot of that, that kind of stuff. And again, it, it played out a little bit in the Bitcoin market, or at least that's my assumption is that you saw some people having to liquidate some of their Bitcoin positions in order to make good for their other positioning in the market. Right. And... Another interesting element to layer on there is you see we see some discussion around, say, Cash App or Grayscale, and people say, oh, look how many coins these guys are buying. They're buying up all the supply. But is that the most relevant thing to consider? So if, let's consider the overall number of Bitcoins that exist today. It's something like 18.3 million in that range. Uh, isn't that surely a more important uh indicator and it, it's not necessarily that every hodler is hardcore stronghand hodler there'll be a lot of those people who as the price rises they might sell some and so you, we, we have to consider that as well as the mining coins right totally agree with you um i think that when you get near the end of the four-year cycle i think that your price floor is most likely being set by a lot of how the miners are selling and putting that new supply onto the market. But you're exactly right. If somebody comes along and let's say they come on hard times and they need to sell some of their coins in order to cough up some, some uh, fiat to pay their, their bills that are denominated in fiat. Well, you can have hodlers selling their, their coins. There's, there's really no way to be able to quantify it exactly. Um, But my suspicion is that, kind of at the end of the four-year cycle, at the start of the new four-year cycle, uh, I think a lot of the price floor is kind of being set by those miners, or at least that's my assumption, which could be completely wrong, but that's that's how I'm looking at it. Right, because it could be that, uh, so the story is that the stronger or more efficient miners kind of win at the expense of the weaker miners, and that effectively... And this is kind of the story from, say, Matt D'Souza, right, from Blockware, where he would say something like the more efficient miners are able to do it for a lower cost and therefore they can hold on to more of the Bitcoins, restricting more of the new incoming supply, meaning there's less available to be bought. And that is the kind of driver for the price. I'm of the firm opinion that Moore's Law is an integral part to the incentive structure. So, you know, if 
if these guys are buying and girls are out there buying brand new rigs, well, guess what? That thing's going four times the speed of somebody who bought one four years ago. So, um, if you're able to run four times faster than your competitor, uh, that has a huge impact on you, on the margins that you're capturing for your electrical expense. Now, if you're getting electricity for free or any of those other variables, which are real variables that has to be accounted for. But if we're talking about the whole, uh, network as a whole, I'm telling you that's, that has a big impact net. Uh, if you're looking at it from a network, uh, standpoint. So, uh, the fact that new entrants can step in and capture more, and I think that's something that's really interesting about Bitcoin uh, compared to a lot of other coins. And, and when you look at the incentive structure, it's almost always when you do something like this, that the, the first mover, the first person there has all the advantage. But what I find a little fascinating about Bitcoin is if you buy a new hardware rig and you step into the market to mine, especially at a time like this, where we're at in the four-year cycle, you have the advantage. You have the advantage over the person who's had the hardware for four years. Now, you might not have the intellect of how to uh, manage your risks as a miner throughout that four-year period in that experience set. But as far as from a pure hardware competing standpoint, dude, you're set up. Awesome. Uh, and look, I would love to chat about an interesting theme that you've been hitting. You've been hammering this theme recently of what's your unit of account, right? Bitcoin as numeraire, right? Because we are seeing this kind of crazy, like obviously today was a little bit of a, obviously a down on the stock market, but up until today, we've seen just this crazy rally and people are thinking, oh, wow, stocks are back, uh, but we're measuring this. What are we measuring it in? So I was ready for this question tonight. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to read a top line revenue of a company for you. Okay. And I'm going to start in, in 2012 and I'm going to just read out the top line. This is the, all the money that the business comes in for people that might not have an accounting background. That's your top line. Uh, so if we were talking and this is not the company that I'm talking about, but let's just say we were talking about Coke for every can of Coke. If the can of Coke was a dollar, that top line is the dollar. And then all your expenses, the sugar, the tin, the, all that kind of stuff, your distribution, let's just say that's 90 cents and you, you have 10, 10 cents remaining. That's your bottom line. The 10 cents is your bottom line. So as I'm going through this, that will help frame this for people that don't have the accounting background. So I'm reading the top line of a company here, a company that everybody knows. And um, I'm going to read off these numbers starting in, in 2012. And here's how they go. 7.9 billion the next year, 4.2 billion, quite a, quite a drop, right? The year after that, 80 million. The year after that got a little bit better. 290 million. The year after that, it got worse. 220 million. The year after that, 120 million. The year after that, 10 million. The year after that, 40 million. This is the top line of Google. Okay. Doesn't seem like it makes any sense whatsoever. People hearing that are just like, yeah, right. He's lying. Right. But what I did is, uh, and, and if I was going to read, so I was reading the, the top line of Google denominated in Bitcoin since 2012 till now. Okay. Now <laughs> let me, let me read it to you in fiat terms, right? So this is the top line of Google in fiat terms. 
46 billion, 55 billion, 66 billion, 74 billion, 90 billion, 110 billion, 136 billion, 161 billion, right? So that's what everyone sees in the market. But if you start looking at things with, with a slightly different lens and you start looking at it denominated, if I go back in time, so like that first one that I was denominating in Bitcoin in 2012, I took $46 billion and the price of Bitcoin back then was $5.77. And I denominated the, the number that I first announced into Bitcoin using that $5.77 price. And so when you look at that, if you were going to graph it, Okay, if I was just going to do a real simple X, Y axis graph, the top line is going straight down, right? It's going straight down. Now, let's do this from a financial valuation standpoint, which is, dude, that's my bread and butter. That's what I really like to talk about. You think I like to talk about Bitcoin? Dude, I really like to talk about financial valuations. So um, you, you then take, let's just take the free cash flows, which I could have done, but I didn't. But if I go in there and I was looking at the free cash flows, it's going to be very similar to the top line as far as it going down if I denominate it in Bitcoin. So when you're doing a, a free cash flow analysis and trying to determine the value of a business, what you're doing is you're interpolating what you think those free cash flows are going to look like in the future. And one of the best ways to do that, and there's no way to prove that that's going to happen because you're really looking at how the company can can sustain its enduring competitive advantage into the future based on the competitors that are in the market, based on the assets that sit on their balance sheet and how competitive those assets will remain into the future. You're trying to interpolate what you think the projection of those future free cash flows are going to look like. Well, when I go back and I denominate things in Bitcoin and the free cash flows are going down and I'm using those future free cash flows going down because my expectation is that these companies are not going to start using Bitcoin as their unit of account today, the free cash flows keep going down. So now I have to discount those back to today, those future free cash flows back to the present today to come up with a valuation on what the business is worth today. Well, when you start doing that math, things start looking a little crazy, like nowhere near the valuations that you're seeing in the open market. because Everyone's doing those valuations right now, but guess what they're using? They're using fiat. And uh, boy, it, it turns into a completely different world when you start looking at things through, through this type of lens. Right. It's, it's that we're going through this massive globally, you know, changing global level change over time and it's you know some could say it's slow but some could say this is actually quite a quick change and because people are stuck in perhaps an older mindset or they're they're sort of thinking okay discount cash flows what's my discount rate and they're they're, they're assuming that the underlying you know unit of account is stable through that time or perhaps it's low inflation and it's not going to be that much Bingo. but but depending on what you count it as it's a huge huge difference and this goes to like one of my biggest gripes with academia, because so if you go into academia, they're going to be like, well, so what's our risk-free rate, right? What's the risk-free rate? Well, God, you tell me, man, because based on the way that they're manipulating the bond market, which is where your risk-free rate is coming from, it's a, it's a total disaster. There is no cost of capital that anyone can possibly use. It's like a unicorn. Uh, it's not even real at this point. And so 
for me personally, anytime I do valuations for businesses, I'm always using an internal rate of return. I'm not doing these, um, you know, the valuations that they want you to use in business school, because for me, when somebody says the value of Google is $110 a share, my immediate response to that person is at what discount rate, right? Cause I can exactly. come up, I can, I can come up with any valuation I want for a company. I can say Google's worth a thousand dollars. I can come up with $5 a share, right? If I adjust the discount rate to whatever I want it to be. So that's the irony for me is you got all these yahoos out there in, in wall street that are saying, Oh, well, the discount rate is 2% on the, what's less than that. If you're using the 10 year treasury, right? You're at like 80 basis points, which is a total flipping joke. So the lower that you push those discount rates, the higher the, the asset price goes if you're doing that. So when people are saying, Oh, the valuation is this, well, I know that they're just cooking the, the discount rate down to nothing. Right. So that's why I'm a big fan of the internal rate of return. Uh, the IRR calculation is because when you think about the variables that go into those equations, the academia acts like the price isn't given to you, but it is, <laughs> it freaking is like I can pull up the ticker for any company and the price is right there. It's a given. Like when you're solving any type of math problem in, in any type of math class, you have givens and you have unknown variables. Like the price is flipping given to you. You know what it is. You know what you can go on the open market and buy it for right now. So why in the world would you treat that as an unknown in the equation? And I'm going off on a tangent that's far off the topic where we probably <laughs> need to be talking, but you got me on a pet peeve. So no, I, I, I enjoy this stuff. I mean, for, for listeners who perhaps are not as familiar with kind of, you know, the stuff you'll learn at finance, like university and finance. And so the internal rate of return is essentially you're trying to calculate what is the rate of return that would kind of set the value to zero, right? And so that's kind of, and then so typically the way people might think about it is they might have, say, a hurdle rate and they want to be able to beat this given rate. But the, it, it, the problem, I think it just, it even comes back to our theme, which is what's your numeraire? What is your unit of account? And uh, as you uh, correctly point out, that if you measure the S&P in Bitcoin terms, you are down massively over the last few years. And uh, yeah, and I think- 80 plus percent. Yeah, I, I think recently you, you tweeted uh, down 89%. And so this is uh, early uh, 2nd of June. S&P was uh, down 89% in Bitcoin terms. Now, in four years. Yeah, right. Um, now, I guess the only point that maybe, again, putting my skeptics hat on, like I'm obviously yeah. uh, in the same view, but somebody might look at a Bitcoin proponent and say, well, aren't you guys just cherry picking the 2017 run up? Like, isn't that just cherry picking? You're just choosing kind of a nice data point, data period. What would you say to that? So my comeback to that is pick any four-year period of time because the protocol has a four-year having cycle built into it. So if you're plucking dates, like I think it's unfair if a person would use a date between now and the next 70,000 blocks, right? Because that is, that is a very aggressive bull market. Uh, in Bitcoin. So that's just as unfair as somebody saying, go back to December of 2017 until the, uh, you know, year and a half after that, another 70,000 blocks from that. Um, so what I would tell somebody is if you really want to try to understand how much this thing's eaten away at fiat, grab any four year period of time since inception, 
whatever that range is that you want to pluck, pick it, pick one date out of the, out of the air between inception of Bitcoin till now, and then go four years beyond that. And that's your, I think that's your true gauge as to how much it's uh, debasing fiat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a great way to put it because it's kind of like you can cherry pick either way, right? So you could pick, as you mentioned, so going from December, 2017 at 20,000, down to I think the bottom was like I don't know three or four thousand in uh, December 2018 ish right but then also from then upwards is also a huge change as well yeah so you got, you've got to be fair about it and I think four years is probably a fair way to put it which as you rightly say uh, we've got an audience question here so we might just pull this one up on screen so Eddie's asking how does all of this work with growth stocks or unprofitable public companies are they all doomed um, you know, I'm, I'm much more of a value guy or a momentum guy. So when people say growth, it typically fits into my momentum bucket. Um, and so when I'm looking at growth companies in Bitcoin terms, it's pretty easy to do it because I'm just looking at for, for me to conduct a momentum, uh, position, I'm really looking at the statistical volatility range of of that specific security, currency, commodity, bond, whatever, it doesn't matter. I'm looking at the historical price action and what kind of volatility it has on a long-term basis. And then all I'm doing is looking at when it breaks outside of that for like a two standard deviation move. And whenever I see that happen, it's, I, I, you know, it's, it's an algorithm that I've written myself as to how I conduct momentum investing. So that's how I look at growth picks. If it's not, value based if it's not based on the fundamentals of the income statement and the in the balance sheet that's how i'm doing it so can i do this by denominating all the previous price points into bitcoin you better darn well believe i can <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome and, and am i you better darn well believe i am yep yep uh and also i think something that is starting to jar for a lot of people it's it's a jarring contradiction is the, the real world, we're seeing massive unemployment. We're seeing all these problems. And yet the stock market up just recently is like rallying back up. How, how can that be? Yeah, that made a lot of belief. And I'm not trying to say this as uh, to stroke my ego or anything. I totally don't. But back in, um, and this was interesting because our momentum trigger uh, went green at a time when I was just like, What? Right. Because we had the big, I mean, shock. And um, and shortly after the momentum trigger on our on all of our indicators, the Nasdaq popped first, the S&P quickly followed. And when I start seeing all those indices that are tracking a lot of different companies all start popping green, I was like, yo, this thing's coming straight back up. And, uh, you know, I, I post a couple charts on Twitter and I put a range fan. I, I you know, I I put where it was at before. And then I put a range fan there that was just like a sideways V. Um, and I said, I know this sounds crazy, but I really think this is what we're dealing with moving forward, which is just this crazy volatility in equities. Because at the end of the day, it all comes down to how many units is, are the central banks pumping into the, into the system. And, um, you know, it's always been interesting because I've always thought of the markets as being much more mathematical than emotional. I think there's definitely an emotional aspect to it. And I think there's this reflexivity to it. 
but I really think that it's very math based. And I think it, it comes down to, Hey, if I just somehow come up with another 3 trillion and pop it into the market, what impact do you think that's going to have? It'd be like you and me playing a game of monopoly, right? And let's just say there's a hundred thousand dollars in the game. And then who's ever working the banker position comes up and says, all right, I understand there's a hundred thousand dollars between you guys playing this game, but now I'm going to drop 500,000 into the game. What in the world do you think is going to happen? We're going to start bidding the prices of different, the, the different assets on the board, you know, instead of park plays being 400, I'll start saying, Hey, I'll buy that from you for 1500, right? Like all those things start popping out. And so that's, dude, that's what you got going on right now. And also, there has been a little bit of scorn or derision heaped on, let's say, the Robin Hood traders, right? Like, that's the kind of, oh, those are the amateur kind of traders. And sure, there's obviously, there's some gambling going on, right? People are treating it like, oh, it's all just penny stock world and so on. Uh, but I think it may be really that that's misunderstanding the root cause, wouldn't you say? That uh, many of these people are sort of being driven into this kind of investing because their underlying money is just losing value over time. Wouldn't you say quick buck, man? I mean, it's just, it's just total speculation. And, uh, if there's one thing we've learned about the, the population these days, they've got a short-term focus. And so when their when their buddy said, I just made a thousand bucks on Robin hood, well then their buddy signs up when they drop a hundred bucks in there and they try to start doing the same thing. So, uh, it's sheep like, uh, psychology at, at its best mm -hmm. yeah yeah uh, I, i'm also interested to discuss uh some there's some recent back and forward uh with yourself and with mark cuban right and so i think these were some it was interesting to watch those arguments play out right so you were talking about obviously the problem some of the problems of which what's your unit of account right now mark cuban's sort of response was saying essentially i'm just gonna uh quote he's saying he's basically saying oh look preston you got a lot right up until the bitcoin part uh but under an all bitcoin system how does the inflation of bitcoin from supply and demand impact those without assets and if you're trying to acquire bitcoin uh and so and then see if he jumped off the top rope and slammed him <laughs> <laughs> that's right i mean because i guess in mark's mind it's like he thinks oh, actually, if the economy is growing, the money supply has to grow with it, potentially, right? Now, how would you uh, respond to that? <laughs> I don't even need to respond to it. Um, but if I had to, I mean, it comes down to this. If people start receiving salaries in Bitcoin and it's going up in value, I mean, the problem he's describing is flipping laughable. You know, I said this on another podcast, so if people hear the, the one that I did yesterday and this one, they're going to hear it twice, but I, I want to put this out there. So to understand his position, you got to understand well where he's at right now. He owns, he, he has a couple operational businesses. You know, everyone has these, these billionaires, they got non-operational subsidiaries, then they have operational subsidiaries. His big revenue drivers are a couple key things. His NBA team, they're not playing. He's got a data analytics company that provides information to sporting events. They're not having any sporting events. He owns uh, a movie theater business, which is huge. No one's going to see movies. 
Like no, no one's going to the movie theater to see movies. So he's got a major top line kind of issue. He's got a major bottom line kind of issue, which means he has free cash flow issues. And when you're looking at something and people are saying, oh my God, this thing's going to take off. Well, how do you get exposure to that when you don't have any free cash flows? The only way to do it is you got to start selling things on your balance sheet. And so I would argue he is balance sheet rich and cash flow statement poor. And uh, that would not be something that I would want to be, you know, as, as I'm there kind of torquing them and saying, hey, good luck with your top line this year, this and that, you know, like that's not helping him want to uh, listen. Or <laughs> So, I, you know, I, I probably need to take a different approach. But um, I, when I look at his standpoint and his concern, I mean, I think he's scared about this. I think that's why he keeps engaging with us because I think he can see that we have very strong arguments that he has not been able to shoot down. And if I was him, I'd be scared to death that this, that maybe we're right. Um, because if you're sitting on a lot of assets that you then have to sell at a prices, you might not want to sell them for, because maybe they're very illiquid. And when you're talking about operational subsidiaries, typically they are very illiquid and there's only a few people that are willing to buy something like that. So, um, not a good position to be in when you, when there's potentially a big opportunity, that's going to look like a rocket ship, uh, coming forward. Now, whether those are, you know, whether that's what he's actually seeing or not, that's what I'm seeing when I see his point of view is all of those things. So some stuff to think about, Mark. Right. And he's thinking in a very fiat denominated mindset. So I think that's, that's, right. that's, that's the fundamental error in his thinking that I guess we as kind of Bitcoin people would say, well, look, you got to, you have to consider this other view. Um, We're very also, biased, yeah. you know, we yeah. have a bias and uh, he sees it a different way and he has a bias. He has a fiat bias. He thinks that the system that he made all of his money under is the right system. And, you know, if we were in his shoes, we'd probably think the exact same thing, but you got to challenge, you got to kill your, uh, your previous thoughts. That's one of Charlie Munger's big thing. Like what, what can you do today to kill some of those preconceived notions that you have from the past? I think he's right. thinking to do. Right. Uh, the other big argument that people bring up is the whole correlation or decorrelation argument right now. Depending on what time period you assess this over, people have said, so typically if you're looking on a longer time basis, Bitcoin has been decorrelated from the stock market. But over certain shorter time periods, I think people can point and say, oh, look, you guys were first saying Bitcoin was decorrelated. But now look, over this short period, I saw it was correlated. What do you say now, Bitcoin people? What's your view on this whole correlation decorrelation aspect? Um, I think there's, I think there's something to it on the days like we saw today where the market was down extremely hard. Um, we saw that back in the March timeframe. Uh, and I think for, for me, all it tells me is how, how reliant everything is on the dollar today. Um, because when you see the market move like that, the, this is people having to get into cash. They have to come up with fiat because they're getting margin called. They're getting all these kind of things and they have to come up with fiat because all those, all those instruments are denominated in fiat. So they've got to come up with fiat in order to adjudicate the, the margin calls. And, and I mean, just think about all the people on Robinhood that were buying calls with no fee on all this stuff that they're, 
following Dave from Barstool Radio and they're just buying call options on it, right? So like all those liquidations and I mean, those guys are the small fish in, in, in a massive pond of, of Wall Streeters that are allocating billions. But um, that's how I see it. I see it as being the dollar is polarizing that. I think when you look at Bitcoin, I think it's it's more reflected on all the other. Uh, when when you look at the people that own Bitcoin, people don't just own Bitcoin. There's some people out there that do, but especially people on Wall Street. I mean, it might be it might be one position of twenty or thirty that's in their portfolio. So if they start taking some heat in some other areas, well, they got to sell the ones that are their winners in order to come up with the cash in order to adjudicate that. So there's Bitcoin, right? So when you look at the sell-off in those short periods of time where you're having a fiat crunch, and that's what this whole thing, this whole incoming debacle that we're experiencing is because, my God, they, they can't control the dollar. They've got to print more dollars. All this dollar-denominated debt that's around the globe is like a major, major issue for the Fed that they've got to print more. And it's like a black hole that they keep shoveling more and more fiat into. I, I had a person once explain it to me like this, and I like this analogy. Um, imagine making a fire like that's kind of small and you're adding some wood to it. But then you have like, let's make it bigger. Let's make it warmer. So you make it bigger. Well, when you do that, you have to supply it with not just a little bit more wood. You got to supply it with a lot more wood. Now think about it being coming a bonfire and it's massive. Now you're like literally chopping down an entire forest to keep this thing going and the sustainment of what it requires to keep the fire going at the, at the pace it was going requires this ever growing because it's based on area and it's not linear, it's exponential. And that's exactly what you have going on right now with the dollar. The, the fact that it's, and I mean, they just printed at levels that are unfathomable. Like unfathomable Insane. relative to all the other central banks. I mean, they just printed like there was no tomorrow. And although the value of the dollar went down over the last couple of weeks, I would argue that for how much they printed and the dollar only went down that much is mind blowing, mind blowing. It's now all these other countries are going to try to keep up because I mean, this is a, this is a tragedy of the commons type situation where it's competitive devaluation of fiat currency amongst nations in order to engineer growth inside of their domestic country. This is nuts. It is insane. And we see just, uh, it just becomes more and more breathtaking. The levels, the, the audacity, the ostentatious displays of, you know, kind of money printing and uh, whatever it takes, right? Now, I guess the other point, I'm really curious to know what you think now, I love the point you were saying they can't control the dollar because that to me is also ticking off this idea as well of the euro dollar, which you're, I'm sure you're familiar with, right? Uh, and so people like Jeffrey Snyder from Alhambra Capital has spoken about this kind of concept that uh, the central banks really, they don't necessarily even have the full visibility over the full picture because people can rehypothecate US dollars outside of that specific uh, US system. And so... What's your view on that impact of the euro dollar system onto US dollar inflation? You know, I, I don't know enough about it to give you um, insightful information, to be quite sure. honest with you. Um, but I, I, I will say this, uh, there's tons of dollar denominated debt. And so what kind of made a lot of this 
arise through the years is once we came off a gold standard, countries like Japan, China, you name it, were all like, well, if we devalue our currency, we can suck dollars into this country like a vacuum, right? It's, it's just a, it's, it's just like pressure, you know, when you study fluid dynamics, the pressure that you get on an airfoil or whatever, it just sucks the fiat right straight into their country whenever they debase their currency. And so where does that money go? Well, that money ends up on the uh, balance sheet of the government. And so then the government's like, well, how do we get rid of this? Well, then they start issuing dollar denominated debt. And so that's where this, this do loop of dollars just getting spread all over the world. It's a network of, it is a total network effect, right? Because they could take advantage of the fact that it wasn't pegged. Well, you can keep that game rolling for a very long period of time, as long as you have positive interest rates. But once you start getting interest rates down to zero and you're still playing these games, like, dude, you get to an end game and that's where we're at is, and you're not at complete zero. I don't even know that you'll get to complete zero nominally, but in real terms, already negative. My God, (laughs) God. especially if you're using Austrian economic type inflationary metrics, my God, you're like, yeah. I mean, it's like laughable to think that you're in any type of positive <laughs> in real terms. It's it's laughable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and when we talk about you know Bitcoin versus fiat money, I think it's also interesting to understand that. Okay, so most of the world considers well, the U.S. dollar is the world reserve currency currently, right? Now, it's arguably also true that in some sense the U.S. has bag holders, not just in the U.S., but all around the world. And so that, in some sense, gives them more of an ability to inflate a little further just because contracts and things are denominated in U.S. dollars. And so I guess the point I'm trying to understand your view there is how do you compare, say, so we were speaking earlier about how if you denominate the S&P into Bitcoin, it's down a lot. Uh, Is it? But the thing to remember, though, is that you, the U.S. dollar is almost like the the least bad of a bad bunch, right? So the, all the other fiat currencies, maybe they're just inflating even more. So what's your view on that? And is it sort of, does it in the short or medium term help the U.S. dollar, at least relative to other fiat monies? No, I think what happens is is, is you have this competitive devaluation that's happening, like when you go back and you look, I'd have to pull up the chart, but like, I want to say from 2015 through like 2018, uh, if you looked at how the, the ECB was printing in relative terms to all the other central banks, it was ungodly. Like they were on fire. And that's why you saw the stock market over in Europe do so well during that period of time. Um, prior to that is when the U S was, you know, debasing heavily. And so it's this rat race of devaluation. So where what you're really getting at is, well, if everyone's doing it and there's, and it's really kind of this, uh, uh, no one ever really outpaces the other person. Well, then is it a bad thing? And I would tell you, it's a very bad thing. And here's why you, you are the price that's being paid through quantitative easing, because that's the only thing that they've been doing. They have not been doing UBI up until just recently around the world. And so as 
all these central banks were conducting quantitative easing. What they're really doing with those policies is they're just ripping the heart out of the middle class of every single country around the world, which is polarizing the politics, which is polarizing pretty much everything between rich and poor. And you're making the rich really tiny, but with a whole lot of magnitude. And you're making the poor really large with a teeny tiny amount of magnitude. And, and when I say magnitude, I mean buying power. Uh, and so what you're doing is you're setting up this scenario of just total conflict. And the further that you push on a string, and that's a Ray Dalio term, the more that you push on a string through these policies, the more that you make that even more fierce between those two polarization of, of uh, communities between rich and poor. So I think it's very yeah. concerning. Right. It's politically very concerning. And we're seeing, uh, you know, a lot of discussion around things like UBI. And, you know, I think maybe this is another area as well to discuss. So when the central bank uh, prints money, or at least uh, raises its monetary base, that doesn't necessarily always flow out into the everyday, you know, people like you and me. Sometimes that just flows into financial assets. So do you see that there may be more of a populist uproar and more of a, an argument that, hey, you know, you're printing to bail out these big companies. Why don't you bail me out, Joe Sixpack? What's your view there? I mean, you're already seeing it. You're, I mean, that's what Antifa, in my opinion, when you look at Antifa and they're an anti-capitalist uh, movement, among other things, um, that's exactly what they're saying. That's, and they're so angry, they're saying, well, you know what? If I can't have any of this, I'm just going to burn everything down. I'm going to create anarchy. That's that's how, and I'm not saying that I agree with that. I'm just telling you that that's their movement. Uh, and the, in my opinion, those are complete results of an inflationary monetary policy that's existed for decades. And then whenever we did get to an end game, they started doing quantitative easing and pumping all the money into the hands of the few. Um, that's what's created this. And so if we look at how they could have handled it over the last 10 years, if they wouldn't have just done quantitative easing and then they would have done UBI, you would have you would have got to the same point. You would have got to the same breaking point, but it would have just taken more time. You, it would, you would have been able to do it maybe for 15 years or 20 years or whatever. But what's, what's interesting now is because they've decided to only use quantitative easing exclusively for 10 years, and they're now down to 0% interest rates all over the globe, especially if you look at it in real terms, um, they can't turn that off. They, you know, people might think, oh, well, they can just stop doing quantitative easing. We'll just do UBI now and we'll make these people stop being so aggressive. You can't do that. And the reason you can't do it is because you have this fiscal spending habit that is accelerating out of control. And by fiscal spending, like all the congressional representatives for whatever country are allocating and obligating tax dollars at a pace that far outstrips the, the receipts that they're receiving. And because of that, they cannot afford interest rates to go up. So if you can't afford for interest rates to go up, you have to keep doing QE because you cannot allow the bond market to sell off. You have to step in and have a backstop on the, on the bond market that says, all right, we're going to peg the rates at 50 basis points. And if anybody steps in and tries to sell it beyond that, well, we'll step in and buy it, period, no matter what, regardless of, and they're already doing it in the junk bond market, which is nuts. 
They're stepping in and saying, I know these are zombie companies and they should probably die, but we cannot afford interest rates to go up. So we're just going to buy it. Here's the, <laughs> here's the cash. So now let me put this in a, a really easy to understand example for people. Let's pull out the Monopoly game again. So uh, you and I are playing Monopoly and we have a banker. Okay. And let's say the banker wants to insert more cash into the game because let's say you're falling behind Stefan and I'm, I'm winning, right? Let's just reverse that because that just sounds like I've got an ego. You're winning and I'm losing. <laughs> no, no, no it's, uh, uh, it's fine. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> you're winning and I'm losing. Okay. And um, so this central, the person who's playing the banker in the game says, all right, I'm going to add some liquidity here so that Preston doesn't throw up his hands and quit the game. So here's how I'm going to do it. Stefan, do you have Park Place? Do you have some different assets that you can sell me? This is the banker talking, right? Because I'm going to insert $1,000 into the game, but you got to sell me some of these assets that you've got, and I'll give you some straight cash, baby. You're going to get the cash, right? So you sell it because you have no choice. It's the government, and you sell those assets. The, the liquidity now comes onto your balance sheet. You're holding it. I got none of that. I got none of that action. And now what are you going to do with your money? You're going to look over at my board and you're going to look at the only assets, the pieces that I have on the game. And you're going to say, Hey, Preston, I want to buy those from you. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and because there's less assets on the board, there's the assets are even scarcer than they were before. The price is going to get bid. Right. And I'm going to give that to you. And then I'm going to get a little bit of the action of the cash, but it's only going to hold up for a little bit because as I go around the board, you're just going to keep sucking it away from me because I literally have no assets because you keep buying them all from me. Yeah. That's quantitative easing. Yeah. So it's like this Pac-Man effect, right? They just keep uh, Pac-Manning it up and they accumulate all these assets and then the government legal system kind of helps facilitate this yeah. kind of transfer of claim over real property and real, uh, you know, profitable businesses or some not so profitable, so, but still. Yeah. So let's run the UBI example through the monopoly game. Okay. So UBI, the bank steps in and they're like, all right, we're just going to give everybody a cool hundred bucks or 200 bucks or whatever. You get it. I get it. Right. So if you do this enough, like I just don't even have an incentive to play the game. I'm just like, well, I'm just going to sit here and they're just going to keep giving me more money. Right. Especially if I'm a lower skilled and, and how it really equates into the economy is if you have a lower skilled labor and the UBI checks that I'm getting are exceeding what I was making through my labor before. What incentive do I possibly have to actually go back to work? I don't. And so both of those options are not options you want to insert into a game that is quote unquote free and open because you create these incentive structures for the participants to start doing weird things that, that don't contribute to productivity in the end. And that's what you want in a free and open market is that everyone's working towards this common objective of free and open market, or I'm sorry, being productive members of society. So when you start messing with the money, you break these incentive structures and you get all these warped and weird things that start playing out. And if you do it for decades, you really start to see some just wicked, terrible things. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, we're talking about bonds. I want to just highlight a question here. So thank you, Kyle, for the super chat. And the question is, how long uh, do you expect bond yields to stay at these low levels? Will it take a CPI reading above 3%? And is the end game when bond yields rise? So 
yeah, they're, they're going to keep these rates at next to nothing because they have to based on the fiscal comment earlier, right? And they're going to keep them there until something breaks, is my opinion. And I could be wrong. That's just Preston Fisher's opinion. And there's, I mean, you can find an academic in any institution that will disagree with me. You <laughs> <laughs> like that? Um, but my opinion is these things are not going anywhere. And what you're going to see is you're going to see them break and they're going to break in a very aggressive way, almost like how a dam explodes and the water comes out of it. That's how I think they're going to break. Speaking of breaking, I think it's time to talk a little bit about the stock to flow model <laughs> and the stock to flow cross asset model. Uh, so I think guys like you and me are seen as, you know, we're enthusiastic about it. Um, and, you know, we're talking about this idea of four year cycles. So where are you currently sitting at in terms of your thought on these models? There has been some discussion about whether they are spurious or whether the co-integration uh, does not exist or cannot be proven or just maybe it, it, it can't be proven yet perhaps or has not been proven yet. Uh, where are you sitting at this point on uh, things like stock to flow and stock to flow cross asset model? I mean, the only thing that I saw that proved co-integration wrong was a person who assumed that, that the four-year halving cycle wouldn't happen, that the protocol would not have in the future. And if that's a true statement, then you don't have co-integration. So for me, like I, I immediately look at that statement or that theory and I say, okay, so then what probability are you putting on another halving cycle to happen? Because as a person who participates in markets and don't have some academic paper to sell somebody so that I can get a doctorate or whatever gee whiz degree, um, I look at that as being so unprobable that it's laughable. I could literally laugh at that because it's that ridiculous. Um, but that's me. Other people might have a different opinion on the probabilities of that. So as far as I'm concerned, co-integration exists. Um, I've not found anything that can argue it the other way. So if co-integration exists and you have an R square value of 95%, um, that gets really interesting, especially when I can back it up with, a really clean narrative as to why price is driven higher because you have a having, you're having the supply, but you're also supplementing the people that are mining it through a difficulty adjustment. And those two things are literally, you know, like this, they're, they're together. It's like peanut butter and jelly. Like when people talk about the four year having, if they're not talking about the two week difficulty adjustment with it, well, they're, they're only talking about half of what's going on here. It'd be like if we were talking about physical mining of gold and all of a sudden every single gold miner in the world mined half as much the next day. And I said, you know what? I, I know you're not profitable because you're only mining half as much as you were before, but all of the people that worked for you just got like, twice as good, <laughs> right? That's the thing that people aren't thinking about. And they're not, they're not adding those two things together to understand why the price goes up. They, they still, the difficulty in adjustment ensures that the, that some of the miners, not all of them, some of the miners remain profitable. And if they remain profitable, that means they're going to bid the price because they're not going to sell as much. 
Yeah. And I think, so then it's a question then of if you like this Dr. Flow model and you think, yeah, this is something I want to look at, then the question becomes, what are some ways that you might think about trying to uh, invest based on it, right? You might be trying to invest when the price is low. You might be potentially, there might be some people who want to try to play that cycle. And so some people are thinking, okay, I might try to sell above a certain price. I, you know, so the analogy plan B has used is something like taking chips off the table. Um, another strategy may be, uh, as you were mentioning, uh, selling put options or selling, uh, yeah, so p- selling put options. Um, what are your thoughts on that idea of uh, whether how a person might apply some of those ideas? You know, I'm a little hesitant to comment on it. And here's, here's the reason why. I, I, I like to read a lot of books on how my brain works. Um, I think it's very important for people to understand what kind of cognitive biases can pop out of some of the things that you say and that you say multiple times. I... Do I think a put option could work? Of course. To protect, like, let's, in the scenario that you're describing, let me just illustrate it for people. So what we're talking about is it's the fall of 2021. The stock to flow uh, model is absolutely correct. The price runs over 200,000. And now you're at that critical point where you're at block height of 700,000. And the model's saying that it's going to come back into a little bit of a reality and you're going to maybe lose half of your position if you continue to hold long. So what do you do? And I guess the reason I'm a little hesitant to answer that is because I don't want to condition myself to say that I'm doing anything right now. I'm going to, I'm going to see where I'm at at that point in time and make an informed decision based on the circumstances. Could I put a put option on there when the price is at 200,000? And basically write it as, or or buy it as an insurance policy. Of course, is the, is the price going to be 40% of my underlying to do something like that? Probably. And that's, that's probably why plan B said, I'm going to sell some of my position is because he doesn't want to cough up 40% of how big his net worth is going to be at that point in Bitcoin in order to buy a contract that would protect that. That's a huge premium to pay for something that would maybe lose that amount, right? And that's that's the challenge is, is you don't know what those are going to be priced at. You don't even know if you're going to be there. You don't understand the macro backdrop of this central bank was literally just lit on fire by protesters, which could have happened. I don't know any of that stuff. And so when we get to, when we get near that, if that's how everything shakes out and how it's all looking, we'll we'll readdress that when we get a little closer to it. Sure, sure. Totally fair point. Uh, and I think it's also, you've got to think about a whole range of things, right? Like what's, what's the tax cost going to be of doing that? Uh, and what, what, what are some potential things that might be occurring at that time? And I think we've, you do also have to consider this concept of uh, how many more cycles are there, right? Is, it, uh, is, it, is, there, is there such a thing here as an escape velocity for Bitcoin? Yeah, I kind of think that there is, but I'm not convinced of it. You know, I, I'm open to the idea that this thing just keeps running these these four year cycles and dips and stuff. I, I mean, that could happen. Um, I kind of suspect, though, that especially with what we're seeing, the unrest that we're seeing right now. I mean, in Seattle, we literally have a total anarchy. They've taken over the city hall, and they've got 
like zones that are set up like a military operation, like you're seeing in Afghanistan or Iraq or something like going on in, in Seattle right now. So when I say things like, well, maybe in, in a year and a half from now that they're burning down central banks in various parts of the world, like, I know that sounds really extreme to some people that might be listening to it, but based on what I've seen in the last couple of weeks, it, nothing would surprise me at this point. Um, where was I going with the question? You had a very. Specific- oh, I was just I was just asking about like yeah, just generally that idea of escape velocity. What would yeah, it yeah, look yeah. like? You know. Yeah. So, whenever I'm looking at this incoming cycle, like, and I I tell people back in 2017 when the price was spiking, you know, we had the mayor multiple at two and a half, almost three standard deviations, and um, I made the bold call right back in December of 2017 to say, hey, I'm going to take some chips off the table, and I played it, and I was very lucky th- that I was able to remove my position and then get back in, especially at the price that I was able to get back in. I think a lot of that was luck because the stock, uh, yeah, the stock-to-flow model was not out yet, but I looked at whenever the price had gone two and a half, three standard deviations that previously, and there weren't too many data points, but previously it had taken more than a year to even come close to starting a recovery. So I just suspected that we were going to have something similar. Luckily, I was right, um, which involved a lot of luck. Um, this time around, we have a completely different backdrop than we had in 2017, in December of 2017. Back then, we didn't have the bond market blowing up. And blowing up meaning like today, like the Fed's a buyer at pretty much anything for the bond market. Like they cannot allow rates to go up at all. And not just the U.S. Fed. I'm talking every central banker in the world. They can't allow rates to go up. So if that's true, and then you start to see municipalities fail and you start to see every single company you see unemployment in excess of 20%. If all those things are still playing out by next fall, 20, uh, fall of 21, a bit worse, <laughs> I don't know how this thing couldn't go all the way, right? Like to me, I, I, if you're seeing something that's blowing through 100,000 and, and you already got the, the uh, Robin Hood you know, traders going, what do you think they're going to do if they start seeing Bitcoin run like that? It's going to be insane. So if I had to decide with one way or the other, whether it is going to achieve escape velocity or it's not, it's going to come back down and go through another four-year cycle. Dude, my, my bet is that it would go all the way. It's going to achieve escape velocity, but who knows? It really depends on where we're at in a year from now when we see that backdrop. And I think that's going to be a really key point to, uh, to the backdrop because, you know, plan B is saying, Hey, I'm going to take some chips off the table. But if all those things are playing out, there ain't no way he's taking chips off the table. <laughs> <laughs> he's way too smart to be taking chips off the table with all those things. Cause what are you going to, what are you going to put it in the fiat that's causing all the issues? <laughs> I mean, come on. Exactly. Uh, so well, what about the view of, let's say, somebody who's thinking they're a property investor and they, you know, they want to take some real property uh, at that time? What would you, how would you kind of assess that from like, a, again, an investor's mindset? I think that would be a conservative play. 
I think that who's ever doing that, they have to have an understanding of how properties work and the free cash flows that they kick off and the demand for the type of property that they're going to own. There's a lot of variables that go into that. And so like, if you don't have that skill set, <laughs> boy, you could, you could get yourself in a world of hurt. So I would challenge people that you need to, if you do want to do some of those things and say, I'm locking it, man, I just made $5 million. I just made 10 million bucks or whatever, right? I'm going to lock this in. I'm going to go buy a building and there's no way that that can ever, if I own that building, there's no way I could ever lose that, that buying power that that building brings. And I think that's going to be a smart decision for a lot of people to do things like that, but they've got to understand what they're getting themselves into. They got to understand how to manage things like that. They've got to understand how to value things like that, especially in a time when the measuring sticks a little strange and you feel like you're in Alice in Wonderland. So a lot of things to consider. And, um, and if this thing runs, it might run for a while. It might run more than people even understand, right? I mean, if this becomes global money and people are, you know, going into the liquid network in order to conduct day-to-day purchases and then they have their, their other, I mean, all those things can happen. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think, I'm also really interested to discuss this concept of investing in a Bitcoinized world, right? So this is something you've spoken about. And I think naturally you're thinking in that term, in that, in those terms, in terms of free cash flows, right? So it's kind of like we're, we're, we're moving from one measuring stick to another. And for now, most people see it like the best risk adjusted return they could get is Bitcoin. Uh, but what, what sort of scenario, what would it take for you to, to then, uh, shift out of that and start going into more of the traditional investing mindset and looking more for like free cash flows and trying to earn money denominated in Bitcoin. Yeah. And I mean, I'm excited for that to happen, but I think it's important for people to understand that I don't suspect this is happening anytime soon. I think this is definitely down the road more, but agreed. when it, when it gets there, boy, I'm going to be so excited because I'm going to be able to do all the things that, that, um, in my opinion, are, are my forte, which, which is the valuation of businesses. Um, so some things that, that would have to happen. First of all, the, the company would have to have some type of allocation uh, on their balance sheet to own Bitcoin, just like you would own any type of marketable security today. So like when I say marketable security, that's just a fancy way in accounting terms for like Berkshire Hathaway. People are like, oh, Berkshire Hathaway owns Coca-Cola. You're right. They own a non-operational, they own it as a non-operational subsidiary as stock on their balance sheet that's listed as a marketable security under the current assets on the balance sheet. Um, so if I see a company that starts saying, we're going to own Bitcoin in the same manner that we own non-operational securities, that to me, that's, that's an interesting point. The other thing that I'd have to see is, it, I mean, it'd have to be some type of meaningful amount because if the company's doing 1% it, allocation of their free cash flows into Bitcoin as a marketable security on their balance sheet, dude, there's no way that's going to outpace the underlying currency, at least from my projections in the next three years. There's just no way. Um, so it'd have to be some type of meaningful amount. 
if you see a company that would go crazy and, and say, hey, I'm going to denominate my entire unit of account for all free cash flows into Bitcoin. And that's the key point is if a company. So, you know, like when a company makes 100 bucks on their top line and their bottom line's 10 bucks, 10 percent margin from their top line. Let's just do some real generic. We're not getting into amortization or depreciation or anything like that. We're just going to say that that $10 is free cash flow, just generically. If that company is taking that 10 bucks and they're denominating all of that straight into Bitcoin, that might catch my interest. <laughs> you're, going to need, you're going to need something like that to outpace the currency. And I view it as a currency. I'm calling it a currency, even though from, for tax purposes, it's treated like a marketable security. So um, that would pique my interest a lot, especially if the company had a history of free cash flows and they had assets sitting on their balance sheet that had an enduring competitive advantage in the marketplace. That would really pique my interest. Um, another thing that I would look for with this is going back to, I was t talking about how I conduct momentum investing. I'd be, I'd be watching the price action and I'd be looking at a breakout in, in Bitcoin denominated terms for the price. Uh, a statistical change in the, in the price action from a momentum standpoint. Yeah, very very fascinating, and I think uh, it is worthwhile calling out, as you said, it's it's a long term thing. This you know this is not we're not talking like next year this kind of thing. But I, I just think it's it's interesting just to think about what it would look like, and because we're we're going through this big transition period, and so I guess talking about then let's say some of the Bitcoin companies today. They, some of them will think about things in terms of Bitcoin terms, right? Just as like a, more like a comparative, right? So they might just sort of say, okay, am I making money in Bitcoin terms or am I only making money in fiat terms? And in fairness, it's hard to make money in Bitcoin terms today. Like it's just, it's like, it's very, very, it's like extremely difficult. So do you have any thoughts on uh, how you would value companies in this transition period? Uh, would you look at companies that are, you know, uh, trying to hold a Bitcoin, as you said, as a market in that transition period? Or is this more like something like you would only look at that, that's kind of, you know, 15 years, 20 years away? So if we're talking hurdle rates and IRRs and things like that, they're going to have a hard time outpacing it. Super hard time. Now, am I, are they going to be on my radar? Am I going to be watching them? Hell yeah, man, I'm going to be watching it. I'm going to be watching the decisions of the executive leadership. I'm going to be seeing how they're talking about it in their quarterly calls. Uh, and then, uh, you know, it, it, it's going to be interesting to track. But as far as if I show up a little late to the game of swapping over into equities for my allocation, because they're now denominating all their free cash flows into Bitcoin um, and things like that. I don't mind being a little late to the game and missing out on a little bit of upside, but uh, you better believe I'm thinking about those kind of things. Yeah, that's really fascinating stuff to think about. And I, I think um, it's, it's uh, and maybe some of this comes back to what we were talking about earlier with, you know, people like Mark Cuban and so on, the people who are balance sheet rich, but cash flow poor, um, because fundamentally, if, if the world really is changing its numeraire, well, You've got to look at who's 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 looking out for that and who's uh, who's thinking in the in in that right context. And, and Buffett talks about this in his shareholder letters. I want to say, oh man, I'm going to mess it up, but it, it was in the early '80s. I want to say maybe 1983 shareholder letters. He talks about 
uh, maybe it was 80, 81. I can't remember. I, I know that when we think about inflation uh, back in 81, it was the worst. You had your tenure at like 16 point something percent back then. Um, he wrote about this idea of companies that have a lot of tangible assets on their balance sheets really struggle in an inflationary environment. And the reason why is because for them to replace, let's just take, a, if you were a farmer, farmers have tons of tangible assets. They've got tractors, they got this, they got every intangible assets, like nothing. <laughs> so uh, if the farmer needs to go out and buy a new tractor and inflation is rip roaring high, like that depreciation on that vehicle is very difficult for them to recuperate and buy the new tractor whenever the old one dies. When you're dealing with a company that has a lot of intangible assets on their balance sheet, you you can adjust the prices almost immediately. Like, uh, I mean, what we're doing right now is an intangible asset that you can run advertising on and whatever, and you can adjust the prices of those advertisers in the future and things like that. So um, people that own businesses or business owners, shareholders who have companies with really rich balance sheets that are heavily uh, intangible assets, that have a heavy amount of intangible assets relative to tangible assets, I think are going to have a much easier time dealing with what's about to happen just because you're going to get into a really unique environment with respect to inflation or I mean, we could go down that rat race of terminology, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm tired of talking about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. Go ahead, Stefan. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Oh, well, I think to me, I think we can draw lessons from history as well, right? So, reading books like uh, The End of Money by Adam Ferguson is a good one, um, talking about the way people were viewed when they were trying to store their wealth outside of the traditional or, or the local fiat money i wonder uh, in your mind I, I know you're quite well read as well i mean you've got this whole uh, row of books uh, my this, trophies this <laughs> yeah incredible uh, series of books there are there any things that you can see as parallels from you know when humanity or certain parts of the world were changing over from one money to another I mean, when I the the most drastic scenario for me is 1920s Germany. I, it's just mind-boggling uh, what they went through in the pictures and things like that. I think what's what's interesting about today versus back then is people have read about that in history. Everyone's seen those pictures, but that was in a time when money was not digital. Today, money's digital. I don't care what anyone says. Like when you can take a credit card and you can swipe it or you can go online and pay bills and all that stuff. It's completely digital. So what, this is the question I would pose to somebody. What would a Weimer 1920s Germany hyperinflation type event look like if it happened in the modern era? You're not going to see the money on the streets. So what would it look like? How would they hide the printing? My opinion is they've been hiding the printing for for 10 years strong with QE in an extreme way. And it's really obvious if you understand how bonds work, because the yields on the bonds have just kept going down globally. And guess what causes that when you buy and you bid the price. So there's, there's, there's your printing. But when you only have a handful of people in the world 
that work on Wall Street and they trade billion dollar bond tranches that see that the price just keeps going up and they get a fat bonus every year. A, they're not going to complain about it. And B, there's only a few of them. So like, who are they telling that, that it's not their talent and that it's just the Fed bidding the price? <laughs> Nobody. So I, that's how I would challenge. And I don't know that I answered your question exactly, but I think it relates back to that. That specific point in time really rings a bell in my head. And I often ask myself, well, what would that look like in the modern era? Yeah, no, and I think, I think it was a great uh, answer because we have to just think about who has, it's like looking back to who benefits, right? So it's not necessarily like, oh, there's a deep, dark conspiracy, but it's just more like, the people in that system, they want to benefit themselves and they're just going to rationally take the certain actions that benefit them. And if they can find some way to throw off the cost into the future or they can find some way to throw off the cost in a hidden way, they would rather do that than put it into an obvious way that uh, hits everyone right now. And so yeah. I think that's probably, you know, the I guess the underlying uh, concept to try and uh, understand. And I think I think we've really we've really nailed that this episode. So uh uh, yeah, I guess if you've just got any, uh, you know, uh, closing thoughts in terms of um, considering Bitcoin as the numerator or any other uh, pieces that you'd like to leave as a parting uh, advice. You know, I'd say people who listen to maybe this discussion are thinking, oh, my God, I got to I got to do all these different things. I tell you the, the exact opposite. I tell you, just keep it really simple. Um Charlie Munger has a quote I really like, and I know Charlie Munger isn't the most popular guy in the Bitcoin community, but, <laughs> but he has a quote. He says, don't just do something, stand there. And that's what I'd tell people to do is just buy your coins. Don't trade them. Don't pay short-term capital gains tax because you think you can out-trade it. Meanwhile, you're running the risk of a major player, major whale stepping in and bidding the price 30% in a freaking day, right? Like you are not smarter than, than the market price action on this. So don't try to be. Just buy it. Just hold it. Don't try to be too cute. Um, you know, we, we were on Twitter today. There's a bunch of people talking derivatives. I was one of them talking about doing long calls. and Just forget all that crap. Like if this stock to flow model is right, you don't need any of that stuff. You just got to keep it simple and don't just do something. Just stand there with your Bitcoins. <laughs> I love it. I think that's a fantastic way to finish. Uh, listeners, make sure you follow Preston online. His handle is at Preston Pish on Twitter. Uh, and Preston, where, where can they find you? Uh, yeah, just on Twitter. I really in, enjoy engaging with people on Twitter. So my handle's right there. You can see my name. That's how it is on Twitter. Uh, also, I have a podcast. Uh, we go by We Study Billionaires or at the Investors Podcast. You can type that in, type my name in, and you should be able to see some of the episodes. We we talk about a lot of things other than Bitcoin. Uh, so if you, if you do have an interest in some of the valuation and stuff, well, you'll, you'll get that itch definitely scratched. But Stefan, I love coming on your show. I love your show. I think you do an amazing job. You ask incredible questions. Dude, please, I would love to come back on your show. I really enjoy your show. Of course, man. I, I really enjoyed uh, chatting. It's always a pleasure to chat with you, Preston. So uh, thank you. Listeners, you can find all my stuff online at stefanlevera.com or at stefanlevera. Uh, but uh, I think that's pretty much going to do it for us. So thank you for joining me, Preston. Great to be here.
See you guys in the Citadels.